0: This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. Last Friday, both chambers of Congress passed an infrastructure bill that will commit more than $1 trillion to the U.S.'s deteriorating roads and bridges making life easier for pedestrians and bikers, improving broadband access, and renovating suffering public transit systems. By the time you're listening to this, President Joe Biden is likely to have signed it into law. This bill has been closely tied to Biden's Build Back, better legislation that would invest heavily in climate change and social policies. While the infrastructure bill had passed the Senate in July, progressive Democrats in the House had wanted to hold out on passing this bill until Build Back Better verse passed. But mustering support for that initiative has been challenging for Democrats, including from within their own party. Last week, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin suggested his refusal to support the bill was because it didn't share enough of the other side's interests. While I've worked hard to find a path to compromise, it's obvious. Compromise is not good enough for a lot of my colleagues in Congress. It's all or nothing and their position doesn't seem to change unless we agree to everything, Manchin said in a press conference. Though Manchin and fellow Democrat Arizona Senator Kristen Cinema have insisted that their holding out is part of a commitment to look out for the interests of everyone, some have suggested that their posture is actually selfish. It is simply not fair, not right, that one or two people say, my way or the highway, said their colleague, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. We wanted to talk about compromise. What is it? How should we understand compromise when you look for it within your core community versus the community at large? What do most Christians misunderstand about it? You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today.
1: And I'm Ted Olson, and I am the Executive Editor of Christianity Today.
0: All right, Ted, give us your gut check about all the stuff happening, especially for Democrats when it comes to passing some of Biden's core initiatives.
1: I was skeptical that we could make the infrastructure bill super interesting for an hour, but I think <laughs> I think we've got an angle here to talk through. There's some interesting stuff in that infrastructure bill when you, if we were to get into the details. But pivoting into that question of compromise, that uh, was Uh, a political science major back in my undergraduate days at Wheaton College. Yeah. You know, this is like day one of your one-on-one class where it's like compromise. Uh, That's the essence of politics is is compromise. And then the difference between different kinds of compromise. So I'm like, yeah, is this actually a discussion? Is this actually a discussion? I'm like, yeah, actually. I mean, you know, it's a conversation that I guess professors need to help their uh, students think through every year. So probably, we can think it through. And then I thought about, you know, the current environment has changed. So what I'm eager to talk about today, hopefully because this is where my gut is, is, you know, I was a student in the 90s when there was a lot of overlap between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. There was a big purple middle where you had conservative Democrats, you had more liberal Republicans. There were these kind of coalitions that made up the parties were, were pretty different. And compromise looked a lot like coalition building those parties have become much more bifurcated, fewer people who identify as moderate, much more people identify as, you know, strong liberal or strong conservative. I'm like, yeah, what does compromise look like now? Have we gone from, you know, half a half a loaf is better than none to trading just pure, like, if you vote for this, then I'll vote, yeah you know, then we'll vote for this. Or if you, you can get this, you know, rather than meeting halfway and everyone getting some of what they want, then it it kind of being on the same package It's if you scratch my back today, I'll scratch your back tomorrow, which seems like a slightly different compromise. I don't know, maybe, or is it just war mode? You know, how many, how many wins can my team add up? That's the question for today. I don't (laughs) There was stuff in that there were, honestly, there's stuff in that bill that got cut that I was like, oh, that would have been interesting to see. I don't know if I up to date on everything they cut and negotiated out, Compromise has generally seemed good, but I'm eager to talk about the nuances of that. Morgan, how about you?
0: A couple of years ago, I listened to an episode of This American Life that did a profile on a woman named Barbara Jordan who really came to believe that her goal as a politician was to pass laws. And that meant that it was therefore incumbent on her to work with the other side. And the reason I think they profiled her was that she was in many ways very outspoken Democrat. She kind of came of political age right around the time that the Watergate scandal was taking place. And then several decades later, Bill Clinton actually tapped her to figure out a way to pass immigration reform. And so she worked with all these other folks who were in the weeds of immigration reform. And these were people that both represented business, but also kind of more humanitarian interests. And she got everyone in there to agree to give up something so that they could put together um, a proposal that would actually go through. And of, of course the plot twist is that she sadly ended up dying and in the middle of this process and it did not end up passing and we still have not had immigration reform and so on and so forth. But I really, really liked that profile and I've thought about it a lot because she was extremely principled person um, who nevertheless saw her role in politics as to be one where she compromises. And it has made me wonder what it takes for someone to be good at compromising. I mean, I think for people that want Biden's um, legislation to get passed you can feel very cynical about the interests of mansion or cinema about why they want to reach the stuff about compromise, especially when it can feel like there's very little give on the Republican side. So one of the things about this infrastructure bill, for instance, is that it was touted as being a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And yet at the same time, only around a dozen Republicans in the House out of 213 voted for the bill. And as I just read yesterday, almost every single one of them has just been, their offices has just been overwhelmed by threats of violence, death threats for them deciding to vote for a bill that doesn't really seem to have very much social, I don't know, very much culture war stuff, I guess. And I've also just been struck by the fact that only around a dozen of them actually wanted to vote for that type of bill too, for something, again, that's being touted as this bipartisan infrastructure bill. I don't know. I I do believe that compromise is important. I think the other nuance that I hope we're going to get in today is that what does compromise look in this age, given that there's often a lot of fracturing within parties themselves, or at least the very least in the Democratic Party, there is a lot of fracturing. And I mentioned at the top that progressive Democrats really wanted to pass the infrastructure bill and build better back at the same time. And they ended up not getting what they wanted in this instance. When you're In politics, sometimes you're also trying to coerce or to flex your power in a particular way as well to get stuff done. Anyway, convoluted thoughts, but glad we could talk about this more at length. Yeah.
1: (laughs) One of the questions that your response raised for me is, how many people from the other party does it take for something to be bipartisan? One? is Does one make it bipartisan? I don't know. Well,
0: and we're going to get into this today, but like, I really, really... Do you still preach compromise when it feels like the other side is only really willing to give a centimeter?
1: Maybe. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And and are people acting in good faith in some of their negotiation? All these will be helpful in our conversation. It's time for us to stop talking to each other and talk to our guest. Our guest is Amy Black. If you look her up online, which you definitely should, You should look her up under Amy E. Black. There are other Amy Blacks out there. And she is professor of political science at Wheaton College. She was not there at the same time as me. She's author of several books, including Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason. She has written several articles for CT over the years. She should be a familiar name if you are reading Christianity today. And we're thrilled that she's on Quick to Listen. Thanks, Amy, for coming on the podcast.
2: Glad to be with you. Okay, Amy,
0: let's start with the basics. What is compromise and what is not compromise?
2: Sure. You know, that's so important because this word has become such a boogeyman for so many people as if compromise is evil. But what I think it's important for us to remember is that compromise is actually pretty much a part of our daily lives. So when we talk about compromise, what we're really talking about is reaching agreement when we have differences. It's a necessary, it's a helpful process for navigating life together because frankly, we all have differences. So there are times, and it's kind of nice, but rare when everyone agrees. We have unanimous agreement and we can move forward. But there are lots of times when not everyone agrees. And so I think of basically three options here. One, someone can force a decision. That's what we usually call authoritarianism or domination. And if someone forces a decision, lots of people are unhappy and basically no one except the person making the decision has agency. Another thing, if we can't agree, nothing happens. So we just have stalemate. Or a third option, and this is really the way of compromise, we can find a way to compromise and we reach an agreement that everyone can live with. So when we talk about compromise, usually we're talking about sort of two pieces that are essential. One is that we're coming into something where there's opposition, there's willful willful opposition. So people have differences of opinion and you're coming together to resolve those differences. And as you do, there's mutual sacrifice. We have different views. We're on opposing sides perhaps, but we can come together and each side sacrifices some of what they want in order to get something good. So I think the best way to sort of move from all this sort of academic-y stuff is just to give you some examples of how we compromise all the time. In my household, sometimes we decide we'll go out to dinner. Okay, now we have to figure out where we're going to order takeout from, and that's a matter of compromise. We don't usually all think we want the same thing. What board game do we want to play? What movie or TV shows should someone stream? If you buy something for your home or apartment, what color, what type? These are normal parts of everyday life, decisions, choices that we make. I don't know that the decision between Chipotle and Panera is going to change the world, but it's a decision and we do have to compromise about it. So the bottom line is we accept compromises in our daily lives. Often I think without even realizing that we are quote unquote compromising. This is how we get along with one another. And even more importantly, I would say this is how we love each other well. So anyone who is acting in places where they are not all alone. And so that's basically all of us living in community. All of us are probably compromising every day on little things and we don't even think about it, but it does make our life together more peaceful and frankly, more possible.
1: It does strike me that the question between do we go to Qdoba or Chipotle, but I do think, you know, if, if politics is, is about kind of generally trying to seek the common good, one of the things we have seen in this culture is people, at least whether whether it's reality or perception, there is a, you know, you can see the poll data where people feel like we have radically different views than quote unquote the other side about what the common good is. So, you know, one survey I saw, this is from last November, so this is a while ago, or this might be actually during this, I think this was, yeah you know, the election period, 80 percent of Biden voters, 77 percent of Trump voters said, quote, not only do we have different priorities when it comes to politics, but we fundamentally disagree about core American values. It Mm -hmm. seems like in some cases we're not just, you know, compromise is not just about arguing about, you know, where we're going to go out to dinner. But some cases it seems like it's a question about whether we're going to eat dinner, whether dinner is a good. Help me think through that. Is it that politics is about reaching consensus about things for the common good? Is it about finding areas where our areas of the common good overlap? Is it about, you know, I'll give you some things where you think this is actually not common good, where this is actually harmful to society, but maybe you could vote for it and we'll do something else that will, you know, ameliorate the negative effects of that. Like what is compromise when we set it in a polarized political environment?
2: something that might be helpful to sort of add to the conversation so that we can get back to that larger question is just to realize that there are different kinds of issues that we debate in politics. And I think what's happened is we've conflated them. So the social science terms, which I think are kind of complicated or wrong, there's hard issues and easy issues is what we call them. But let me explain what we mean. So when we talk about political issues, I think it's really important to recognize what is the point of disagreement. And a lot of times a lot of our rhetoric, we immediately go to they are wrong, I am right, I'm on the side of the angel, they are evil, before we even know if we disagree or not. So when we talk about issues, I think it's super important that we discuss ends and means goals and ways that we achieve those goals. So, there's some issues, and these are the issues in which I would say we probably can't compromise, or it's going to be much more difficult to compromise. There are issues in which we disagree on the end goal. What I think is for the common good you do not think is for the common good. That's going to be really hard. And a lot of these issues are issues that we kind of think of as sort of classic cultural issues, moral issues. We're going to run into this a lot on issues related to abortion. We're going to run into this a lot on issues related to sexuality. And sometimes at the end of the day, there's very little or no room to compromise because we just disagree on what we're doing. But so much of what's going on in Congress, and infrastructure would fit right into this, I think, so much of what goes on in government, we're not actually battling about end goals. We agree with the end goal. We have a shared sense of common good. We just don't know how to get there. So I think most people would agree poverty is a bad thing, and we would like to alleviate it. But we disagree a lot over what's the best policy, what's the best way to help decrease poverty. We don't want violence. We don't want crime. We don't want terrorism. There are lots of things we don't want, but trying to figure out how to how do you fight terrorism most effectively? How do you fight crime most effectively? What policies are going to help alleviate the effects of crime? Those kinds of questions, super complicated and super difficult, but that's where I feel like there's often more room for compromise because if we agree on an end goal, then we recognize... We both want to get somewhere in roughly the same place, but we're looking at it differently. So if we look at the current bill we're talking about for today, the infrastructure bill, most people in both parties would agree, not everyone, but there's general agreement that American infrastructure is crumbling. We've actually tried to get these major infrastructure bills through for many, many Congresses now and have not been successful. So I think there are people of goodwill in both parties thinking, you know, a little investment in roads, bridges, broadband, et cetera, would be a really good and necessary thing. But how much investment, what things qualify as infrastructure, how much to spend, that's where we have to sort of start having those conversations. And that's where compromise enters.
0: I have a lot to get to on the political end that I think we can explore in a couple of minutes, but I want to get into scripture a bit first and kind of get into some of the theology about this what examples do we see in the Bible of different folks that we may or may not look up to compromising
2: Sure. You want to do a nice little search for the word compromise. We're not going to find that in our English translations of the Bible, but we actually are going to see this practice that I'm talking about, this idea of how can we learn to love one another well? How can we sacrifice our own pride? How can we sacrifice our own needs on behalf of others? And it's throughout scripture. So let me just give you a few examples. I mean, first and foremost, the Bible just says so much about how we should conduct ourselves and how we should live in community. We are told, obviously, the great commandments, love God and love neighbor. And what does it look like to live that out? You know, Peter talks about in first Peter, he says that we should live such good lives among the pagans, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. We're told, The way we live our lives matter. People are watching, and this is actually has gospel consequences, has kingdom consequences. In Romans 12, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's not about, hey, you got this. Now I got to get back. I don't need vengeance. I don't need, you know, repayment here. I'm trying to, as far as it depends on me, live peacefully with people, get along, find ways to resolve our differences. In other words, one piece of that might be that idea of compromise. Galatians 5 is a place I like to go a lot because I think it unfortunately speaks to our current politics, perhaps more than we want. In that chapter, Paul calls us to serve one another humbly in love. And I think service and humility are things that we don't see a lot in our politics, and then he continues, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And again, I just sort of biting and devouring each other. That's just strikes me as you could take those words from Galatians and just put them right into our current context. And then the most famous part, of course, of Galatians 5, I think one that many of us reference and think about, are the fruits of the spirit. And we should talk about those because those are super important. But before Paul encourages us to, to put on the fruits of the spirit, he tells us to take off the acts of the flesh. He tells us to move away from that which Satan would have us do. And there's a long list, but let me just give you the stuff that seems to me that translates directly to how we engage in politics, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and the like. I mean, that to me describes so much on social media, so much on the talk shows in the evening on the cable news, so much, and even how people talk about politics with one another. And this is not just other people. This is what we Christians are doing. We're showing hatred. We're showing discord, fits of rage. And instead, we're called, of course, to demonstrate the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control. That's what we're called to do in everything, in politics, in our in our home lives, at work, with our friends, everywhere. And I feel like we've just kind of gotten off that mark. Amy, you've mentioned some of Paul's mandates about how
0: we're supposed to live with one another. One of the examples that comes up of these tensions playing out is this instance where Christians are not in agreement about whether it's appropriate or not to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And I'm wondering if you can get into Paul's response or how he advises them to work through that and what that suggests about compromise as well, especially in an area where there's a lot of really intense moral and spiritual. Feelings/slash convictions about how to act in that particular instance.
2: Sure, and you know, that passage is, is is an important one, and it's one of many where we see in the early church that there are differences, and sometimes the differences can't be resolved. Yet we see that those so those there's an, there's a room for healthy differences. In this case, Paul is talking about the fact that some feel like they can eat the food sacrificed to idols, and some who cannot. And he's trying to remind them that, you know, God is, is above all of this. There's no God but one, he says. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things come. And he's trying to point them to their unity in Christ. So he's saying, I know we're going to disagree on this, and there are these these, these false gods, but we know we have the true God. But then he also says, you know, some people are used to this, and this is what they've done. And so he's telling us that, It depends on their conscience. So at the end, he says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? He's talking about this practice is perfectly fine as long as you understand who the true God is. But for others, this could be a stumbling block. For others, this could confuse them and could even confuse them in their faith. And so he's saying we need to be careful about that. And we need to be concerned about the effect that it has on others, particularly others in the faith. So I think there's a lot of lessons here. At the very end, he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall we have to think about what's the purpose, what's the end that we want to seek here. And Paul is saying, we're gonna have some disagreements. And these disagreements are often going to confuse people. And what we really want is to say, what points people to God, what confirms our unity in Christ, and any thing that we do, any simple practice that we have, you know, that is not essential to our spiritual life, we can give that up. If it giving that up is helping others, if it is helping our brothers and sisters grow in Christ. If something's a stumbling block to someone, we should take it away.
1: It seems to me that one of the issues that we have right now is an increasing number of people on both, I hate left, right spectrum, easy bifurcations, but but you have, you have people who, increasing number of people who say, well, <laughs> those are great Bible verses when you are talking about you know brothers and sisters who are united in Christ or, or whatever. What about feeling like the other side is, you know, walking in darkness. We're not brothers and sisters, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, throwing in a Paul against Paul to say, you know what, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What you do hear on both left and right is questions about, it's phrased different ways. Partial justice is injustice or justice delayed, you know, is justice denied. Hear this, I think uh, a lot, you know, it strikes me as being a, A pretty compelling argument about some of the slowness of civil rights issues moving through the political system that a lot of leaders saying, you know, the the kind of constant like wait a little bit longer, wait a little bit longer. You know, cultural change takes a lot of time. Don't push for too much in the legislation. Uh, And in the meantime, injustice prevails and you hear this on uh, you know uh, on on abortion very much so in fact the southern baptist convention in their last meeting you know that there was a fairly big fight over this uh, resolution that was passed at the convention condemning what has been the dominant Pro-life effort uh, over the last, you know, many decades after the last several generations of kind of incremental change. Instead, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to repent attempting incremental change on abortion, rather than pushing for absolute abolition. Now, this resolution on abolishing abortion you know, very much was in that mode that incremental change, any compromise on abortion. I think there's a line even there where any effort to regulate abortion even rather than abolish abortion is mm-hmm. something that we need to uh, confess as sin. For those of us who say like published J.I. Packer, we've published all these folks and say, you know, half a loaf is better than none is really a good principle to operate by. What's the response on that? Like uh, half a loaf is injustice to the person that needs a, a full loaf to get their nutrition and survive, survive the day.
2: I think that example of, of abortion politics is probably a constructive one, although, of course, it's such a difficult issue. Maybe we should first just start with sort of defining this half a loaf compromise, make sure people understand the analogy. This is very much, I think, sort of the prevailing analogy, at least in the 80s and into the 90s. This idea of if you want a whole loaf of bread and that's your goal, that's your policy goal, and someone else wants something different. If you can get half of that loaf, you haven't gotten the whole loaf of bread yet, but you've at least received part of, you've achieved part of what you wanted to achieve, and it's better to achieve some of something than none of something. And I generally I am, mean, again, it doesn't work with absolutely every issue, but I do think that that is a good analogy for thinking about political compromise, and even on a really tough issue like abortion. So this is an issue... I'm very strongly pro-life. I worked for a pro-life congresswoman and even got to help work on legislation that we believe moved forward our goals and our concerns. So in something like abortion, I think incremental change often makes sense. I'm not saying it's necessarily the best way. I'm saying it's the most likely way. And so if you look at abortion, it is, of course, a moral issue on which there's significant disagreement, As someone pro-life, I'm going to see that developing life inside of the womb as human life, human life made in the image of God of infinite worth and value. Someone who disagrees with me, someone on the pro-choice side, is going to just see it as sort of a mass of cells and tissue. It's just kind of part of the woman's body until some point that gets debated, possibly viability, possibly birth. We got some pretty fundamental differences here. But from my position, I'm going to say that's a human life that must be protected. And it's, it's an innocent human life that has no agency whatsoever. And so I want to protect that vulnerable person. So if I want to do that, and there is a law, so if, if the current law says all abortion is legal, and there is something before a legislature restricting some abortions, I would see that most likely, I'd have to see the legislation, but probably as a good thing. Do I want innocent lives killed? No. But if this law might prevent 10,000 abortions, I would say we now have 10,000 fewer human lives lost than before. And so in my mind, that is a good, that is a moral good. And that is something that God would want us to seek. Does it mean I end there? No, but it means that we're looking for opportunities to sort of move forward. And on the issue of abortion, if you look at the statistics, it's pretty interesting. Now there's been a lot that's gone on. It's been a mix of abortion legislation. There's also been a mix of social service funding, but we've seen abortion rates have gone down a lot in the United States. And again, as someone who's pro-life, I would say that is a great thing that we have seen fewer innocent lives lost. Is this compromise in there? Sure. Am I compromising my values? I don't think so, because I still am going to fundamentally say we're talking about human lives here made in the image of God of infinite worth. And what we need to do is see how we can protect them and protect as many as we can.
0: It's interesting that you're talking about this through the lens of abortion, or in, in some ways, almost a single issue, right? I wonder to what extent, if you are someone who ends up being animated by a particular issue, it becomes in some ways a little bit easier to understand how and when to possibly compromise because it creates almost a a hierarchy of priorities. So for instance, you might be fine passing some legislation that you feel like is pro-life, even if it increases government spending significantly because you know that ending abortion or fighting back against abortion is your number one concern. Do you think that it is helpful for Christians to kind of rank the things that are most important to them and then try to see how they can elect officials who carry out those political priorities as how they rank them and that it's an issue that in many ways we've seen politicians who are ostensibly pro-life and yet at the same time, may have significant issues about raising government spending, right? And so they would not actually pass a particular bill because of concerns about that. I I guess I'm just trying to understand if a move towards caring about single issues or using a hierarchy like that is a helpful change from the current way that we can often get entrenched in what we would call partisan politics.
2: You know, so there's there's lots of different ways to approach one's voting choices when we come to an election. We don't have a lot of choices in the United States because of our two-party system, but we still have options. And, and one that you mentioned is this idea of single issue voting, which is not uncommon, where someone will say there's one issue that is the most important and that's what I care about the most. And I'm going, I will only support someone who is with me on that issue. I understand that and and in many ways respect that. My only concern with that is that there's so many issues that are going to come up at at different levels, that if you only focus on one issue, I think you're also missing a lot of the distinctions. And sometimes candidates agree on your one issue, so it doesn't help you. So single issue voting, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I'm just not sure it's the best framework for approaching our elections, particularly because it just doesn't always help you. So I, I do think though, that this idea of having some priority issues, the issues that you believe are the most important and the most fundamental. And I'm thinking of this, of course, through the prism of my faith, what biblical principles are in play? What do I believe God would seek to have us do? What does it mean to serve the common good? And so what issues are at the forefront for me coming out of those biblical principles? And that's a list. And it's a list of maybe three, maybe four, maybe five. I don't know that I have an exact, there's no magic formula, but I do think that the Holy Spirit is is working in our lives and stirs in our hearts about different issues. So if you have that list, Then you can say, let me evaluate the candidates on my priority issues and see who lines up the most. Rarely is any candidate going to align with us on every issue. And indeed, if you find you align with a candidate on every issue... I would just ask you just to make sure that you're aware because it just seems to me that would be super unusual. I like to tell my students if I ran for office, I wouldn't, wouldn't probably agree with myself on every issue just because there's so many complex issues that we have to wrestle with. So if you had that list of priority issues, I think that is a great way to help evaluate candidates. And I like it far better than picking a party and going with a party full stop, because party issues change, party values change, party priorities change. We've definitely seen that in the past 10 years a lot. And what I want is allegiance to be to Christ, to God and his principles, to what it means for us to be followers of Christ. That's our first allegiance, not to the Republican Party, not to the Democratic Party. So I need to start with biblical principles, find those issues that align, and then evaluate You can evaluate parties that way, and you can evaluate candidates that way.
3: This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is... By having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more, but just one O, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will.
0: Is there ever a time when we should not be willing to work with People who we may disagree with on other issues. I'm just thinking of if, if you are someone who is pro life and there's particular legislation that might be out there in the, I'll just say, the social service realm. Is there ever a time when you might say, you know, I'm not going to support this bill because it looks like pro choice people are also supporting it and I don't want to be associated with them or in their camp. And that is, I'm going to draw the line there, even if that legislation might be something that I'm not viscerally against.
2: Yeah, I just have a hard time seeing how that is helpful, that that stance. It seems to me that we should be listening to everyone, respecting other people's views. Doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but looking to partner. And I mean, I guess one way you could even look at it and say, let's just use the, there's so many war metaphors in politics, particularly now. So the enemy, the person who's against me, I don't want you to hear that I think that someone views it something different in politics than me is my enemy, but many do. So what would the Bible say about our enemy? Oops, it says, love your enemies. You know, so there's kind of this sense of, you know, so we're to love the, our enemies, we're to love those who persecute us. It doesn't say heap hatred back on them. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't give us that path at all. It's not always going to be possible to work with people with whom we disagree, but it often can be. And I think that's just such an opportunity, both it's a political opportunity to move forward But it's also, I think, a super opportunity for people of faith. It's a beautiful opportunity for Christian witness to say, you know what, you know, we fundamentally disagree on this issue. I'm pro-life, you're pro-choice. And you know, we're just, we're just going to have impasse on almost everything related to that. But you know what, I do share some of your views here on social spending. And I'm concerned about those single mothers and how they can care for their children. And I'm concerned about early childhood education. And I'm concerned about childhood poverty. Let's work together on those issues. So to me, it's just an opportunity to to build community and to help people see and help us to show our love for them. It's our love for neighbor comes out in, I think, the politics, the political positions that we take and the political policies that we pursue, but our love for neighbor also comes out in how we engage in politics. If it's politician with politician, elected official, with elected official, trying to reach compromise on legislation, or if it's individuals interacting on social media, it's, it should all be about love for neighbor.
1: Totally agree with you. That it should be about love for neighbor. But I do wonder if, you know, it does strike me that the American political system is also not just about like each particular vote. I also hate all the sports metaphors as well as war metaphors, but there's a short-term view. There's a long-term view. And thinking through the strategy where because we're in a two-party system, it does seem to me that there is some legitimacy to saying, I think that this party is heading generally in the wrong direction. And the more legislative wins, the more kind of political wins that they receive, the more kind of momentum that party gets, the more kind of, the more the country and that party head in a wrong direction, even if I may agree with the specificities of this particular bill. And so I'm going to oppose if I'm, if I'm, I'm just thinking if I'm a member of Congress. So there would be a, a strategic goal for opposing something that you might otherwise think, all right, that's fine. Or, okay, I can meet them halfway on this. If if we were actually kind of hoping to create common good on this particular issue. But because I'm thinking, no, that party is heading in the wrong direction on all sorts of other issues that I really disagree with. I don't want them to get wins. I just don't want them to get wins, period. It sounds like from our conversation that you would think that's not a great attitude to have. That's not a good Christian strategy. And I'm wondering if I am reading you right, or if you think that that's a legit strategy.
2: I mean, I definitely understand and can sympathize with the idea that if you see a particular party going in what you believe is the wrong direction, that you're hopeful that they won't succeed. And I think we definitely in that case should be supporting campaigning for voting for candidates of the other party, if you will. But I think when it comes to governing, that's just not... The way to go about it. And what's happening right now in Congress, your portrayal is actually a much kinder, gentler version. But what's happening right now in Congress is pretty simple. And that is Republicans do not work with Democrats, and Democrats do not work with Republicans. And that's pretty new. Compromise is super difficult right now, especially in Congress, because the leaders in both parties have decided. We're going to take a firm party line and we want everyone in the party to vote together. If you are a good Democrat, you are going to vote the Democratic line. If you are a good Republican, you're gonna vote the Republican line and we will not tolerate anyone who does otherwise. That's been kind of the mode for the last 10 years. In the not too distant past, Republicans and Democrats worked together, particularly moderates. And Democrats controlled the house for over a generation. Republicans would have been totally shut out if they didn't seek to work across the aisle. But what we saw is that members from both parties worked together on a lot of major legislation. Democrats, of course, had more say because they had the majority, but Republicans also had a voice. They also had a chance to be a part of the process, and so they were able to help shape public policy. If you're concerned that the other party is going in the wrong direction, maybe you should see if you can... Work with them, point out what you think is problematic, steer them, maybe you don't, let's say they're going 180 degrees in the wrong direction, well, maybe you can move them to 90 degrees in the wrong direction, that's at least gotten them closer to what you think is the right direction. So I just think it really is about we have to find ways to work together. And we can't when we start demonizing the other party, when we start thinking that we're at war, when we start pride is a lot of that too. I am right. You are wrong. I am the si- God is on my side and Satan is on yours. We must vanquish this evil. Pretty soon we're into death threats. I mean, this is contemporary politics, right? So I think we have to move away from these us versus them constructions and we have to move in a direction where we realize, you know, we're going to fundamentally disagree on a lot of stuff, but we also work together on a lot of stuff. Because what's happened in this decade or so that it's been kind of all or nothing, all Republicans, all Democrats will wait to the next election and we're going to win and we don't want you to help us because we don't want you to get any credit. That has led to something we call stalemate. Congress has not been able to accomplish much. If we want our elected representatives to be able to pass new policy, if we want them to move forward, it kind of helps to have legislation. And ultimately, practically, historically, it just seems to work better when you have both sides contributing truly bipartisan legislation.
0: Okay, I also have a <laughs> I don't know, rebuttal, but thing that I want to ask about which is let's let's talk about Joe Manchin for a second because for many Democrats, Joe Manchin is actually the reason why legislation is not getting passed right now. Joe Manchin may be saying Oh, I want to work with the other side. Oh, I want to involve himself the other side. But for many Democrats, Joe Manchin is being arrogant and is wielding his power in a way that feels inappropriate. He is in many ways denying Democrats the ability of being able to pass some of Biden's legislation that um, it appears otherwise they would be able to pass, given that they do have the votes to pass that if he decided to kind of get along with the program. And now I just read the quote that I said earlier from Manchin. He said, well, I've worked hard to find a path to compromise. It's obvious. Compromise is not good enough for a lot of my colleagues in Congress. It's all or nothing. And their position doesn't seem to change unless we agree to everything. Now that I read that, I'm like, was he talking about Republicans or his own party? And I'm not exactly sure who he was talking about. I, I guess I could go look that up in a second. But Is Manchin someone that when you're talking right now, Amy, about like, yes, we should like really try to embrace the spirit of compromise. Is this the type of leadership on this issue that we would want to use as a model?
2: You know, it's an interesting, we're in a very interesting position with Joe Manson. And of course, Kristen Sinema is right there as well. We have a 50-50 Senate. And if we have a 50-50 Senate, that means that voters in 50 elections voted Republicans into the Senate and voters in 50 elections voted Democrats into the Senate. And I think sometimes we even forget that there are voters behind all of this, right? So that, that we're at this very narrow, the narrowest of possible margins in the U.S. Senate. And it didn't just happen overnight, there are discrete choices behind that. So that suggests that there's a lot of, so we, we've got this 50 50, this evenly splits in it. So as I mentioned before, right now, the politics are all or nothing with each party. And you see this very strongly in both parties, it doesn't mean every member of the caucus is going to go along, but pretty much most of them do. So I would say we've got a lot of my way or the highway politics with from the party leaders. Um, They expect all of their members to vote in lockstep. They leave no room for compromise. I am the Republican leader and I tell you, you must vote with us and you may not vote with them. I am the Democratic leader and I say, you must vote with us and you may not vote for them. There's no space for compromise in that posture. So what's interesting to me here is that really any of the Republicans, any of the Democrats in the Senate can defect from following the party line if they want. They always have been able to. And it's how it's almost always worked. They just aren't doing so because the party pressure is so strong and they are so scared for the implications that they're going to go on lockstep. So, Mansion and Cinema, part of it's because they're moderate, but part of the thing is, too, is just they're sort of like, you know, they've kind of figured out we're willing to negotiate, we're willing to talk to the other side. They're telling us not to, but what's going to happen? And if I'm the only one willing, to negotiate, if I'm the only one willing to be a part of this, that really positions me well to figure out what I think my constituents need and to sort of get what I want, because everyone is now looking to me. And so I mean that's what they're kind of doing. And Manchin, you know, he does have a lot of power. He's probably the most powerful member of the Senate right now because of this unique position he's in as the only one who's going to sort of move away. And cinema started to do that. And it may or may not Work with their constituents, we can see in the next election. I have a feeling it's going to work really well for Manchin since he comes from a very Republican state. He's protected West Virginia interests in a lot of this compromising. Here's the thing, though any other senator could be joining them. It's not as if they're the only ones who could be part of this compromise. And it seems to me that if we had five or six Republican senators or five or six Democratic senators saying, you know, wait a minute, I want to be a part of this too. I mean, some of this is happening behind the scenes. Don't get me wrong. There's been a lot of compromise going behind the scenes. But we're focusing a lot on mansion and cinema because they're most public about it. And they often end up being kind of the last person that has to be included. So I just think it's a super interesting political dynamic. But we have to remember, they're not there on their own because of a choice they made. They're there because the voters have given us a 50-50 Senate, and they're there because 98 of the other members of the chamber aren't willing to compromise on much of anything.
1: Do you see this split towards more ideological rigor, like this don't compromise, as being a move away from kind of politics as game view? Or a move toward politics as game? Because, you know, you and I, you know, we know a lot of folks in politics who just, they, they get this mindset, you know, kind of how many wins can I rack up? It becomes a little bit less about common good and becomes a little bit more about sports teams. Do you see what's going on right now with less compromise and a little bit more hardening on the left and the right as a move away from that? view or a move that is, is happening because more people are viewing politics as game and war?
2: I think this is a move toward further gamesmanship and further sort of war mentality. What I don't want your listeners to hear is that I feel like every member of Congress is that way. That's just not true. There are so many men and women in Congress that are really there with a heart for public service, with a heart for the common good, for the heart for serving their constituents. But there are a lot of folks that are kind of, they want to win at all costs and public service is probably not that high up on the list of what they're doing and why they're there. And when our margins have been so narrow and when we have seen party control flipping of these chambers fairly often, they've kind of made the party leaders and many, in obviously, because they're going in lockstep within the parties have made the decision, we're going to be win at all costs and make sure that we win at all costs, and that the other party gets nothing that can even be remotely seen as a win or a benefit. It's all for us, all against them. We don't want to work with them because they are the enemy and we don't want the enemy to win. And that's a very common mindset right now in Washington. Again, not everyone feels this way. There is that piece. And then you sort of have to put this and amplify it through all of the different forms of communication that we have. There are a lot of passionate voters out there. There are also a lot of kind of not so sure. Sometimes they show up to vote. Sometimes they don't. Those are often the ones that decide our presidential elections. Those passionate voters that you can't compromise because you're compromising your values, even though they may not understand the nuance of what they're having to say there. Those kind of voters are the ones that show up in primary elections. Those are the ones that show up in the first step of our process who pick the party's candidate. And so a lot of our politicians have just decided we're going to play to our base. We're going to play to those primary voters and we we'll gonna do whatever they ask. And primary voters in both parties tend to be more ideologically extreme. They tend to be the least likely to be interested in compromise and the most have a sense of ideological purity that's kind of motivating them. So when you sort of add all of this together, it becomes a big giant game. And I'm all about game. I play I play fantasy football. I love professional sports. I think there's a lot of room for some fun in games, but I think we've kind of moved too far from what is the purpose of a democracy, of a representative democracy, and what is the role of our elected officials. They are here as our representatives to try to do what they think is best for their constituents and their country, to make hard choices, to use their extra knowledge and wisdom that they're going to gain by being in Washington to sort of try to move us toward the common good. I don't think we're there right now. Are there some members who act that way, some senators who are animated that way? Absolutely, but that is not the norm. And what we've found is that when members of Congress sort of go in that direction, they're often the parties can slap them down so fast. And they find that sometimes the penalty from the party is just too much. In what ways
0: have you observed Christians making it challenging for Christian leaders, politicians and other maybe church leaders as well to compromise?
2: Oh, wow, how many hours do we have? (laughs) I think one of the things that's happened is that a lot of people, Christians, and of course people outside of of the Christian faith as well, have moralized lots of political issues that aren't necessarily about underlying questions of right and wrong. And so our battles in politics you know, it's, it's a battle and it's not just a battle, but it's a battle that we're fighting for all that is good. And we're fighting against the evil. And you know, who wants to compromise with evil? Who wants to work with those who are evil? I mean, those phrases are kind of some of the things we've already been discussing in this conversation. So people are the posture right now for so many, and I think well-meaning, like it's sort of the sense of this is what God wants. And I want to be on God's side. And, and they sort of forget the means and ends here. And they forget that The way that we conduct ourselves in public and in private is important to God. They forget the call to Christian character. Fruits of the Spirit are out of the way. They're just at war. So how does this make it challenging for other Christian leaders? If people are telling you you can't compromise or you are somehow not a good Christian, if that's the message that's being sent and it's being sent powerfully, it's really hard for pastors and other Christian leaders to try to seek dialogue across differences, to hold a more nuanced view. They're demonized. They get death threats. I mean, this is real. If Christians in the name of their religion, let's just think about that. If Christians are sending death threats to another Christian with whom they disagree, we've really gotten off the rails here. So we can get really far off course when we're in that all or nothing good versus evil mindset. So I think what we need to do is is we need to walk back our rhetoric. We have to approach politics with more humility. We have to see that those who disagree with us are actually image bearers of God, too, that they deserve our respect. And even if we think they're our enemies, they're still people we're called to love, and they're also still people made in the image of God. You know, what happens to me, I think, is a lot of Christians, and you see this on both sides— just abandon biblical principles when it comes to political engagement, because it doesn't matter how I, I I just need to win and then we'll get this end goal and God will be happy at the end goal. So they're angry, they're bitter, they're prideful, they're hateful. And somehow this is okay. I think because they think they're on God's side, but that's not what God calls us to do. That's what not, that's not what Jesus modeled for us in his life and ministry on earth. We have to model the fruits of spirit and what they do. So, It's so hard for pastors. It's so hard for Christian leaders when they are just feeling, they're not just feeling under attack, they are under attack. And so we have to, I just really think, pull ourselves out of this, of this really destructive mindset. And I think there is a pretty easy way to do that. And it comes from Jesus himself. We need to just look at the golden rule. If we would do unto others as we would have them do unto us, If that actually was the way we approached our politics and our rhetoric and our social media, this would be a completely different environment. It would be a better environment for us as Christians. It'd be a better environment for our Christian witness. It would put much less pressure on our pastors and our leaders who are trying to navigate these incredibly difficult political waters. Amy, thank you so much for everything that you've given us to digest today,
0: to think about, to reflect on. For people who have feedback for us, send us an email. We are at podcast at com. For sure, there are going to be people who have strong feelings about compromise. So let us know how you feel. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moment. And it's when we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Over to you, Ted.
1: I recently went to a conference out in Philadelphia that was a group of folks who were working on biblical literacy. Super interesting conference. And, you know, one of the interesting things is even just kind of narrowing down, like, what is it we mean by biblical literacy? One of the folks there was talking about all the folks... They encounters as a professor who have a hard time kind of talking about the grand arcs of scripture, the the major stories of uh, of scripture, what different books of the Bible are really about, and what what is Paul trying to communicate in this particular epistle, that kind of thing. He was saying, you know, these are these are folks who read the Bible every day. It was illuminating. It's also just really helpful for folks. One of my passions is you know that that line that Jesus has when he's confronted. With one of the kind of theological dilemma things that the religious leaders throw at him. And he says, you know, your problem is that you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. It was great being with a bunch of folks who not only also <laughs> look around them at the church and at the society and say, wow, yeah. The problem is that people do not know the scriptures and people do not know the power of God. And not just uh, the people running around, you know, freaked out about it, but that there's folks in there that are doing some really interesting things about it. So. You know, we'll be telling more of those stories, I think, in the CT.
0: Didn't you give um, a talk there too?
1: I did. I just gave a little talk about how CT sees the problem and is trying to address the problem, especially uh, among, you know, Christian leaders who also struggle sometimes with biblical literacy. I know I struggle with Bible literacy and kind of thinking in the forefront of my head about how to use the Bible well, how to think about the Bible, how to be more literate in my Bible use. CT is trying to be part of the solution, but we are also, you know, when I hear Jesus saying, your problem is you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God, I, I hear him saying that to me, not just to my neighbor. It was precious to be with folks who care about the Bible. Oh, people can find me online, Twitter at Ted Olson. Morgan, how about you?
0: Okay, I will share something that probably I guess is a little bit on brand for stuff that I like to share during this segment. And that is that I have a friend who right now who's... Moving off the island and I was like, before you leave, you have to give me a ride on your motorcycle. So he did on Monday and it was very fun to ride around. I I actually told him that I think that the speed limit in Hawaii is very conducive to riding around on a motorcycle because it's usually like 35 or 45 in most places are also stuck in traffic a decent amount. At least for me, it's ideal because the wind is not cutting up your face. I know obviously people, most people who ride motorcycles like to go way faster than that. And I'm sure that would also be very fun. But yes, it's a wonderful way to say the island. And I'm really glad that I got to meet him before he moves away. So shout out to my motorcycle friend. People can follow me on Twitter at
2: M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. Over you, Amy. Well, my precious moment, if you're going to have me give one, is actually more forward looking than backward. I'm really looking forward to spending time with family at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, because of the pandemic, that didn't happen last year. And I'm just grateful. It makes me even more grateful for those opportunities to spend time with family. Awesome. Amy,
0: Amy, can you tell us about some of the books you have out and also where people can find you?
2: So people can find me at the Wheaton College a webpage, Amy E. Black, and there's some stuff there. My most recent work, something I'm actually quite excited about, is a report that I did with Michael Ware called Christianity pluralism, and public life in the United States. And we interviewed over 50 Christian leaders just to sort of talk about our current moment and how we should navigate political and social and cultural differences. It's available at the Trinity Forum at their website. And it's just, I think, great insights. We basically just interviewed these folks, took these wonderful comments, this wealth of information, and tried to compile it together just to give us insights from how can we move forward as we know and as we've been talking about today this is a very difficult political moment difficult cultural moment it's a difficult social moment but it's also i think a real opportunity for us as followers of christ to be pointing people to the gospel and so i was just excited to be a part of that work report where we're trying to look for solutions in the midst of a difficult time
0: All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. The podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps and the transcript is done by Faith and Dovu. For people who have comments, questions, feedback, and so on and so forth, send us an email. We're at podcast at com. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you all next week. Bye.